Welcome to Rapidly Rotating Records, an hour of toe-tapping music from rapidly rotating 78 RPM records of the 1920s and 30s with yours truly, Glenn Robison. We've got dance bands, hot bands, sweet bands, show tunes, novelty tunes, blues, jazz, and more on everything from Aeolian to Xenophone and by everyone from Aronson to Zerky. Now I have a feeling that this show is just going to be a train wreck, but besides that, we're going to go back to school, turn down the lights, hear all about Rosie, and do some wondering. Back on the October 29th, 2017 show, I played Sweetheart of My Student Days by Dick Robertson with the Hit of the Week Orchestra directed by Bert Hirsch. It was also recorded by Bernie Cummins, Earl Burtnett, and Ted Wallace, which you know was a pseudonym for Ed Kirkaby. Well, you know who else recorded it? That's right, Rudy Valley. And here he is to start off a student segment. Today, 
that you might be mine tonight. A new moon makes lovers grow bolder from skies up above. The song is love. This night forever will haunt me, sweetheart. Just whisper that you want me. New moon is over my shoulder. I wish that you might be mine Back in October last year, I played Sweetheart of My Student Days by Bert Hirsch and the Hit of the Week Orchestra as part of my special high school reunion show. This time we heard Rudy Valley and his Connecticut Yankees and their version recorded by Victor on October 13, 1930. And of course you remember that Seymour Simons wrote the tune and Gus Kahn the words. Next was the Victor Light Opera Company with a medley of songs by Dorothy Donnelly and Sigmund Romberg from the operetta The Student Prince in Heidelberg. Students' Marching Song, Golden Days, Serenade, Deep in My Heart, and last but not least, The Drinking Song. That was recorded April 17, 1925, and in the company at that time were several of our revelers' friends, Wilfred Glenn, Elliot Shaw, and Franklin Bauer. The Student Prince opened at Jolson's 59th Street Theater on December 2, 1924, and ran for a whopping 608 performances, closing on May 22, 1926. The show also had a whopping 150 members in the cast. We finished up with Fred Williams, with Anson Weeks and his orchestra, and A New Moon is Over My Shoulder. Ignacio Herb Brown wrote the tune, and Arthur Freed the words, and That Brunswick 78 was made in Los Angeles on July 20th, 1934. So, what does A New Moon is Over My Shoulder have to do with students? Well, it's sung by Phil Regan and Betty Grable in the 1934 picture Student Tour, also starring Jimmy Durante, about a college rowing team's world tour. I'm Glenn Robison, and you're listening to Rapidly Rotating Records, bringing you vintage music to which you can't not tap your toes from rapidly rotating 78 RPM records of the 1920s and 30s. My friend Dana, whom I've known since childhood, aware of my fascination with trains, recently shared with me a document his sister came across while digging through the family archives. It was the story of how their father, Don, was very nearly killed in the wee hours of the morning of Sunday, November 1, 1970. Don had been working for a couple of years at a gas station, but was finding it a bit difficult to support his growing family. In 1950, he heard that the Santa Fe Railroad was hiring and applied at the head mechanic's office in the San Bernardino yard. 
The very next day, he was hired as a fireman on steam engines, a tough, dirty job, but much better paying, and after five years, he was promoted to engineer. Fast forward to 1970, when Don was at the controls of Alco GE S4 diesel switch engine, serial number 78806, built in June of 1951, with Santa Fe roster number 1511. He was moving 18 cars filled with grain, each weighing nearly 100,000 pounds, when he saw another string of cars rolling on a crossover and coming straight at him. His first instinct was to jump from the engine, but had he survived the 18-foot drop, he would have rolled under the moving Union Pacific train on the main line next to him. So he stepped onto the heater in front of his seat, curled up into a ball, and prepared to meet his maker. The impact was so severe it caused his engine to come to rest nearly vertically on its nose, but the control pedestal kept Don from being crushed. After all the noise and flying glass and debris had settled, he was able to crawl to a door on the left side of the cab, kick it open, and slide down to the ground. Five men, expecting to have to pull his dead body from the wreckage, stood there in disbelief. The engine was so badly mangled that it was loaded onto two flat cars and taken to Kaiser Steel in Fontana, where it was melted down and taken off the Santa Fe roster. So it thanks that Don was spared and went on to finish out his 36-year railroad career without further incident, retiring from Santa Fe in 1986. Here are some rapidly rotating records about some train wrecks with less happy endings. Come all you brave bull railroad men and listen while I tell the fate of easy or rich or good men we all loved well. This man was running on a road known as Virginian Line. He was a faithful engineer and pulled his train on time. He was the oldest on the road, we always called him Dad. He loved his engine very much, he was the best we had. Frank O'Neill was his fireman, he was faithful, true, and brave. He stayed with Dad, he died with Dad, and filled a new-made grave. It was a bright spring morning on the 24th of May. The train crew was at Roanoke, they were feeling fine and gay. Train number three had left Roanoke in route for Huntington. These poor men did not know that they were making their last run. Dad pulled his train, a pleasing smile on his bright face did beam. He did not have to grumble, Frank sure kept him lots of steam. At 11.52 that day, they just left Ingleside. And eastbound freight crushed into them, they took their farewell ride. It seems that all good engineers to duty always sticks. Dad entered into service in the year 1906. He did not have to work to live, they begged him to retire. 
But Dad would not give his consent to run was his desire. Dear ladies, if your husband runs an engine on the line, you may expect a message of his death most any time. All railroad men should live for God and always faithful be. Like Dad and Frank, they soon may pass into eternity. At 11.53, the morning of May 24, 1927, two Virginia railway trains, one passenger, one freight, collided head-on at Ingleside, West Virginia, killing two and injuring 29. The two fatalities were the crew of the passenger train, engineer E.G. Aldrich, better known as Dad, and fireman Frank O'Neill, who were scalded to death by steam from burst pipes. Aldrich had been with the railroad since 1906, and although the song portrays both as faithful and brave railroadmen, it was their failure to obey a meat order that caused the accident. Three separate ballots were written and recorded about the tragedy. The first of the three, and the one we just heard, was The Wreck of the Virginian, written and sung by blind Alfred Reed, accompanying himself on violin. That was recorded in Bristol, Tennessee on July 28th, just a couple of months after the crash. Born blind on June 15, 1880 in Floyd County, Virginia, Alfred Reed grew up on a West Virginia farm only about 30 or 40 miles from Ingleside. The Wreck of the Virginian was the first of 21 songs he recorded for Victor between 1927 and 29, many of which he wrote with the help of his wife, Nettie. Next is the most famous of the train wreck ballads. Watching the smoke from below It was strolling from a tall and slender smokestack Way down on the southern railroad It was ninety of on the fastest mail train That the south had ever seen But she run too fast on that fatal Sunday evening And the death roll is number sixteen on this cold frosty morning of which I tell you the ground was covered with snow Old 97 left Washington City like a gnarled shot from a pole Give him his orders at Monroe, Virginia sings steep You're away behind time this is not 38, but it's old 97. You must put her in Spencer on time. Well, he looked over at me as black, greasy farmer sing, shovel in a little more And when we cross Little White Oak Mountain, you can watch old 97 roll. They were going down grade, making 90 miles an hour when this whistle began to scream. He was found in a wreck with his hand on the throttle and was scalded to death by the sea. On a telegram come to 
Washington City and this is what it said. The brave engineer that from 97 is lying in North San Jose. Oh, it's come all ye ladies, you must take warning from this time now and on. Never speak harsh words to a true loving husband, he may leave you and never return. The most famous of the train wreck ballads, The Wreck of the Old 97. The only time it's been played on the show before was back in 2014 by Billy Jones and Ernest Hare. There are lots of other recordings about the wreck, including by Vernon Dahlhart, of course, and Gid Tanner and the Skillet Lickers with Riley Puckett, but we just heard the Ernest V. Stoneman trio with Ernest V. doing double duty, playing guitar and singing on January 27, 1927. Number 97 was a mail train on the Southern Railway that ran between Washington and Atlanta from December 1902 to January of 1907. At Monroe, Virginia, on Sunday, September 27, 1903, the crew changed and engineer Joseph A. Brody took over. Brody, B-R-O-A-D-Y, was known as Steve, after the daredevil Steve Brody, B-R-O-D-I-E, who jumped from the Brooklyn Bridge on a bet in 1886 and lived to tell about it. The train was about an hour late, leaving Monroe, and Brody was ordered to make up the time. He had transferred to the Southern Railway from the Norfolk and Virginia only a month earlier and was unfamiliar with the route of Old 97. Approaching the Stillhouse Trestle, a 75-foot-high wooden bridge spanning Cherry Creek, he took the curve and descending grade too fast, and the Baldwin locomotive, along with the five wooden cars behind it, plunged into the ravine, killing nine, including both firemen, the conductor, flagman, and Brody, who, like Aldrich and O'Neill in the last song, was also scalded to death by steam. Seven others were injured. Three members of the train crew survived. One resigned immediately, but two others continued working for the railroad, albeit on different runs. Well, can you bear one more train wreck? Here's Riley Puckett. They had just left the point at Kitanning. Freight number 1262. She traveled right on down the mountain. And brave were the men in her crew The engineer pulled at the whistle For the brakes wouldn't work when applied The brakeman climbed out on the car top for he knew what that whistle had cried With all of the strength that God gave him He tied in the brakes with a prayer But she 
kept right on down the mountain. Her whistle was piercing the air. She traveled at sixty an hour, gaining speed every foot of the way. And then in a crash it was over. There on the track the freight lay. They were found at their post in the wreckage. Both had done their duty so well. The engineer still held the whistle. And the fireman still hung to the bell. Here in California, we have a railroad landmark, the Tehachapi Loop, built by the Southern Pacific Railroad and opened in 1876. I've actually hopped a freight train through the Tehachapi Loop. Altoona, Pennsylvania has another railroad engineering landmark and historical monument, the Horseshoe Curve, built in the 1850s. It's 2,375 feet long with a very steep slope of 91 feet to the mile. On the morning of November 29, 1925, Pennsylvania Railroad Engine Number 1262 was leading an eastbound freight down the grade at Catanning when the air brakes failed. Reaching an estimated 60 miles per hour, it derailed and the engineer and fireman were both killed. The song we just heard describing this tragedy was the Altoona Freight Wreck, sung by Riley Puckett. Carson Robinson wrote the tune, and the words were by Fred Tate Douglas. Most of these kinds of disaster songs are written and recorded very soon after the event in order to leverage the shock and emotion, but it was nearly 12 years after the wreck that this Decca 78 was recorded, September 29, 1937. Country music pioneer Riley Puckett was born in Dallas, Georgia on May 7, 1894. Blinded as an infant, he was educated at the Georgia School for the Blind in Macon. Best known as a founding member of Gid Tanner and the Skillet Lickers, he played at Fiddler's Conventions, on the radio, and recorded more than 200 sides between 1924 and 1941. Riley Puckett died July 13, 1946, in East Point, Georgia. A couple of weeks ago, we had a One Thing in Common show based on the brand new CD by The New Wonders, the New York City-based septet led by cornetist Mike Davis. And I hope you've taken a look at that CD at cdbaby.com. Well, this week we're going to do some more wondering. After that last segment, I think we need some cheering up, and I have just the ticket. Here's the BHSO.
I wonder how I look when I'm asleep. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how do I look when I'm through pounding feet. Oh, tell me, oh, tell me, oh, tell me the secret if you tell me I will keep. It's driving me to drink and I haven't slept awake from wondering how I look when I'm asleep. I wonder why it is that 
I with the greatest ease Get off the whole darn bunch of keys a fun record. The Clevelanders from our Brunswick 78 wax September 20th, 1928, and I Wonder, written by Abner Silver, Maceo Pinkard, and Benny Davis. The vocalist was Edmund Ruffner. Edmund Birch Ruffner was born November 8, 1899, in Crawfordsville, Indiana. IMDB says November 18th, but Ruffner's gravestone says November 8th, so I'm going with that. In 1918, he was in the Army and, as a six-foot-seven heavyweight boxer, was given the name Tiny. Following the war, he worked for Standard Oil in California and studied singing. He moved to New York, where he sang in concerts and operettas and made at least four records. We played his recording of Where the Shy Little Violets Grow back in Not Nine. Remember? 
In the 30s, he got into radio as an advertising executive, announcer, producer, and writer, and was affiliated with Fred Allen's Town Hall Tonight, Palmolive Beauty Box Theater, The Camel Program, and The Al Jolson Show. In 1935, Ruffner was the announcer on the radio program Tony and Gus, heard five nights a week on the NBC Blue Network. Before retiring in the 1950s, he also worked in television. Tiny Ruffner died February 23, 1983, in Mount Clemens, Michigan, and is buried at Clinton Grove Cemetery. Before Tiny, it was Marion Harris and Billy Murray with a nice duet rendition of I Wonder Why, written by Harry B. Smith with the music by Jerome Kern. That Victor recording was made February 28, 1917, right in the middle of the run of the show for which it was written, Love a Mike. It opened at the Casino Theater on January 15, 1917, and ran until September 29th. We started off with the Bar Harbor Society Orchestra, a pseudonym for Ben Selvin, and I Wonder How I Look When I'm Asleep, written by De Silva, Brown, and Henderson. The vocalist on that February 23, 1927 recording on the Perfect label was Bobby Donnelly, another pseudonym for Ben Selvin. And I'm very sorry to say I couldn't find out who played the xylophone on that record, but nice job. I'm Glenn Robison, and the show is Rapidly Rotating Records. We're here each and every Sunday evening at 6 on Island Radio, FM 88.7, KISL Avalon, and KISLAvalon.com. Some time ago, I got an email from Howard Hafford's grandniece asking if I could play some of his recordings. Well, Michelle, I'm going to play every single one of the Howard Hafford records I have, which is, unfortunately, just the single one.
sweet and mellow, soothing and slow. Strains of a mellow cello when lights are low. Here we're so close together. I love you so. Why think about the weather when lights are low? Two hearts revealing music half times. I so appealing with inspiration in your arms. Our lips meeting soft and tender. Love's all aglow. Why shouldn't we surrender when lights are low? The Standard When Lights Are Low was written by Spencer Williams and Benny Carter, and Carter recorded it in London on June 20, 1936. We heard another recording of When Lights Are Low recorded in London, the British band Teddy Joyce and his orchestra, exactly two months later on August 20th, with the vocal by Huey Diamond. Vocalist Huey Diamond also sang with the Lou Stone, Joe Loss, and Roy Fox bands. The name Raymond Dance Band was used in England for American bands recorded electrically on the Columbia label, and also for Burt Ralton's Havana Band, as well as the Piccadilly Revels Band. But in this case, as usual, the Raymond Dance Band was Stan Greening and his orchestra, playing When Lights Are Low in Cairo, written by Sherman Myers. Sherman Myers was just one of a number of pseudonyms, including Rex Avon, Herbert Carrington, Brian Hope, and Paul Hoffman, for Montague Ewing. Their birthdays are coming up in May, so you might hear more from them then. That recording was made May 4, 1927. Henry Thies and his Hotel Sinton Orchestra led off the set, recording for Victor in the ballroom of the hotel on May 28, 1928, with Don't Wait Till the Lights Are Low, written by Carmen Lombardo. The vocal duo there was Don Dewey and Howard Hafford. Don Dewey was a regular vocalist with the Thieves Band, and singer Howard Hafford was heard on Cincinnati radio stations WSAI and WKRC, where he became musical director. Lyric tenor Howard Hoke Hafford was born January 27, 1894, in St. Louis, Missouri, and studied voice under Grace G. Gardner in the 19-teens. He joined the Navy in 1918, and following his honorable discharge on April 21, 1922, he sang classical works at churches and concerts. In 1925, the Hamilton, Ohio Daily News said he has a most pleasing voice that wins the instant approval of all who hear him. Now, I defy you to find another vintage music radio program where you get that degree of vital information other than right here on Rapidly Rotating Records.
Have a particular song or artist you'd like to hear on Rapidly Rotating Records? Well, you can send your requests and your comments about the show by email to glenn at rapidlyrotatingrecords.com or send cards or letters to Post Office Box 145, Claremont, California, 91711. That's glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at rapidlyrotatingrecords.com or Post Office Box 145, Claremont, California, 91711. Last month on January 23rd, Naomi Parker Fraley died at age 96. You probably know her better as Rosie the Riveter, the woman pictured on the iconic We Can Do It poster during World War II. Fraley, along with her sister Ada, was working in a factory at the Alameda Naval Station here in California when a press photographer took a picture of her which became the inspiration for the poster. The song Rosie the Riveter, written by Red Evans and John Jacob Loeb, was recorded by the Four Vagabonds on January 15, 1943, a little past our general timeline of the 20s and 30s, but they started singing together on St. Louis Radio in 1933, so it's okay. And we might have time for one or two records about some other Rosies. All the day long, weather rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory, Rosie. The Riveter keeps a sharp lookout for sabotage Sitting up there on the fuselage That little frail can do more than a male can do Rosie The Riveter, Rosie's got a boyfriend, Charlie Charlie, he's a Marine Rosie is protecting Charlie Working overtime on the riveting machine When they gave her a production knee She was as proud as a girl could be There's something true about red, white, and blue about Rosie
June 23, 1925, George Olson and his music with the vocal duo of Billy Murray and Ed Smalley and Row, Row, Rosie, written by Alfred Bryan and George W. Meyer. And we began with the four vagabonds singing all about Rosie the Riveter. If you noticed a lack of instruments in that recording, it's because it was made during the musicians' strike, but the group did pretty good imitations of muted trumpets and bass fiddles. The four vagabonds were baritone Norval Tuborn, lead singer John Jordan, tenor Robert O'Neill, and bass and guitarist Ray Grant Jr. They began singing together at Vachon High School in St. Louis, and after just three weeks, they were singing on WEW, the radio station of the University of St. Louis. That led to a weekly half-hour show, Sundays on WIL, and a network show on KSD. In 1936, they went to Chicago, starring on Don McNeil's Breakfast Club on NBC's Blue Network. They made their first record for Bluebird on December 17, 1941, and the group stayed together until 1952. And to Naomi Parker Fraley, Ada Wynn Parker Loy, and all the other women who worked in factories and shipyards during World War II, thank you for your service. I'm Glenn Robison, and you've been listening to Rapidly Rotating Records. I hope you'll click in or tune in again next week, and as always, I... Thank you for your very kind attention.